Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you and good to have some visitors out with us this morning. You're very welcome. I wonder, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 through to verse 5. I want you to notice that in verse 1, of chapter 2, that this is the word that Isaiah saw. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? How do you see a word? Well, Isaiah saw a vision. He saw many visions, uh, and we're told that uh, in various parts. Back in chapter 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. But here it's described as a word, and that reminds us that what we're reading this morning is a message. I've often thought, if only I could see some of the things that Isaiah saw, or the apostles saw, maybe I'd have more faith. But God knows in his wisdom that what we really need is a word, a message. And so here we have for us the word of God, which can create just as much faith in us as it did in Isaiah. Let's read together from chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray again before we come to this word. Father, we thank you indeed that you're a God who has not remained silent but has spoken to us. You've given us this word. You've given us your whole word and we thank you for it. We pray that as we listen to it, that you would indeed create faith in our hearts and help us to be obedient in faith. Father, we thank you for this glorious vision, a vision where nations will no longer war together. And as we consider 20 years on from that terrible day, we thank you that one day there will be an end to all terror. And we know that it will only come ultimately through the preaching of the gospel around the world. Help us to listen now as we learn something new from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The words of Jesus in the Great Commission before he left this world. 
I doubt there's a Christian here who has not or will not at some stage feel the weight of those words and the desire to obey them. What a call to mission. If we're Christians, we know that we have been called into Christ's church. And because of that, we have been called to take part in the mission of the church. Locally, by seeking to share the good news with the people we know and rub shoulders with. And globally as well, to send and to support missionaries to go to parts of the world which have not yet heard the gospel. I suspect that most of us, if we're pressed, can think of few things more important or worthy of our time and our efforts than being involved in the mission of the church. We want to be on mission. But I imagine I speak for most of us this morning in saying that when we measure this up against our own lives and on how we actually behave and respond to this command, there's a disconnect between what I believe I should do and even what I would want to do and what I actually do in practice. The kingdom of this world also has a mission. And it's a mission that runs counter to this great commission, the mission of the church. The mission of this world is to find the career, the partner, the family, the friends, the pastimes, the house, the comforts that fulfill you. And while all of these things are good things and gifts from God, being involved in the mission of church involves being willing to sacrifice in each of these areas for the sake of others, to give up our time and our comfort and our money in order to reach others or to support those who are reaching others. To put it in some other words of Jesus, it means taking up your cross and following him. So to persevere in the kind of self-denial that local and global mission require, when everyone around us is living for themselves, that's our great struggle as Christians, isn't it? The world calls us to come and follow them. What they have to offer on the surface is more attractive. It's easier. It's more enjoyable. It's good as well. Sometimes we think of the world in terms of us versus them, but these are good gifts of God. And yet what we have to offer involves giving up those things. It's harder. It involves sacrifice. It has an increasingly unpopular message attached to it. So to persevere in mission against this opposition is difficult. But perhaps the greatest challenge of all is that of our own hearts. Sinners saved by grace, being changed by the grace of God. Thank God for that. But still sinners. We fear what others might think more than we fear God. We, we love their praise and their respect more than we love their souls. We've learned that on our Honest Evangelism course, haven't we, from Rico Tice. And so we remain silent when we should speak. We, we love the things 
that the world has to offer. And even the godliest person here has a hesitancy to sacrifice good things for a greater cause. It can seem like we're on mission with the world instead of to the world. Not only are we fighting against opposition without, but opposition within our own hearts. When Jesus uh, gave this great commission on that mountain to his disciples, it says some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. It's an apt description of us. We're sometimes on the fence. We're not all in. The people of Israel had a mission too. Before Christ came, that mission was not quite the same as ours. The people of Israel were not so much uh, sent out as missionaries to the nations, but they were to be like a lighthouse shining forth to the nation's truth about God's ultimate mission to the world. And by obeying his laws and trusting in his promises, they were meant to attract the nations to, to Jerusalem. And when Isaiah spoke to Judah, and remember Judah was the southern kingdom of that once united nation of Israel, when he spoke to Judah, he knew that they had lost their way and they weren't persevering in the mission that God had given them. The temple, which stood for God's presence in Israel and his purposes for the world, it stood high on the temple mount, on the mountain that Jerusalem was built upon, but it was surrounded by higher mountains. And in the psalm that Rodney read, we read of one example of that. And the gods of the surrounding nations supposedly lived in these mountains. And Judah feared the military might of these nations. They were also attracted to their bright, beautiful, visible gods when they worshipped an invisible god. They liked their customs. They liked the security that those nations could give them if they would just pay tribute to those nations. Protection money. For Judah too then, their mission was to remain faithful to the one true God and to trust him, but they found it difficult. They faced opposition. They were surrounded by these mountains of security and comfort and pleasure. But like us, their sin was the biggest problem. In chapter 1, up to this point, Isaiah has been acting as God's lawyer. That's the picture that one commentator paints here. And he's, he's prosecuting Judah and Israel. He's piling on violation after violation. Israel has failed to keep God's law. They're not being the lighthouse to the nations that they were called to be. And now they're considering adding to these sins by giving in and paying that protection money to the nations around them. They're trusting in those who can ultimately protect them instead of the God who can. But as we read, in the midst of this darkness, 
Isaiah shines a ray of light into their midst. And he casts their vision forward into the future to the final outcome of God's mission to the world. In that day, although Mount Zion wasn't physically higher than the mountains of Zeus or Baal, the mountain of God's presence would tower over all other nations. And in fact, the nations would flood towards it. And we've been singing about that this morning and we've been reading about that this morning. The mission God gave to Israel to attract the nations to her would be fulfilled despite how things appeared in their present. And the swords and the spears of their enemies that they were so afraid of would be beaten down into tools for creating and cultivating, not destroying. Why did God give Judah this amazing vision of the future? The answer comes in verse 5. So that they would return to their calling and persevere despite the challenges within and without. So that they would walk in the light of the Lord. That's what Isaiah calls them to do. To come back to that. This is what Judah needed to hear as their enemies closed in. This is what they would need to hear beyond Isaiah's time in Babylon when they were under exile and probably doubting God's purposes for the world. This is what they would need when they returned from exile to a much smaller and less glorious temple and city that they were used to. And this future vision of the outcome of God's mission, the outcome of our mission as the church, is exactly what we need to hear to persevere in the mission of the church. We often neglect that very last phrase in Jesus' great commission statement that we've heard read out and maybe preached on so many times. He says, I will be with you until the end of the age. Mission has an end goal. One day our mission will be over because that goal will be completed. And what a magnetic picture of that outcome. Isaiah paints for us to pull us towards that goal. When it comes to mission, we must stand with our feet on two mountains. Not only the mountain of the Great Commission that propels us forward, but this mountain that we've read about this morning, the mountain of the house of the Lord that pulls us forward. This is how we will persevere in mission, locally and globally, amidst the mountains of trials and temptations that seem to oppose us. This is how we will continue to witness, to give, to pray, even when it feels costly, even when we perhaps even doubt that it's making a dent in that mission. I've purposely taken a a fair amount of time to set the scene this morning. And in the remaining 15 or 20 minutes, I'd like to draw out two simple lessons from this passage that will help us to see that 
looking to the outcome of the mission helps us to persevere in the task of mission. So first of all, to persevere in the mission of the church, we need to imagine the outcome, to look ahead to the final outcome of mission. And this is, of course, what I've been saying for the last 10 minutes. But what is the vision that Isaiah was giving to the people of Judah? And how does that apply to us? Let's think about that in some more detail. Look back again with me at chapter 2 from verse 2 and and 3. And as I mentioned earlier, the nations that were surrounding Israel, they believed that the mountains in their territories were the homes of the gods that they worshipped. But in verse 3, Isaiah says that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be seen to be the highest of mountains and it shall be lifted up. Sorry, that's verse 2. Not because it was physically higher than those surrounding mountains. It wasn't. Not because one day that that mountain was going to somehow grow, but because spiritually it was superior to the false religions of the nations around Israel, uh, around Jerusalem. And in the covenant that God made with Israel, he graciously chose to show his presence and his blessing upon his people in the building of the temple. Not because God can be confined to a temple, but because that is the special way and the special place where God chose to show his people and indeed the other nations, I'm their God and I have revealed myself to them and to you. And so Isaiah says in verse 3, it is out of Zion that the law shall go. Do you see that? For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This was the specific place and the way that God had chosen to reveal himself. Not through man-made attempts at religion. And one day, it is to this mountain, and therefore to this God, Yahweh, the true God, that the nations will flow. Israel, Judah, your purpose, your mission will be fulfilled, despite your futile and feeble attempts to fulfill it yourself. Despite your sin, despite the opposition, your mission will be fulfilled. And then in verse 4, we get this wonderful image of the result of all of this. No longer opposition and warfare between the nations, but peace. Swords hammered into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, which the Israelites would have used to pull fruit down from the trees. And the prophet Joel seems to take these words of Isaiah in his prophecy, in his book, and he turns it upside down to say that the nations normally take instruments of agriculture and turn them into weapons to fight each other. It's the impulse of people everywhere in all times and all places. It's like the schoolboy who impulsively empties his barrow and turns it into a spitball cannon. And I can tell from a few smiles that some people have tried that before. 
But this impulse for war is reversed and replaced with peace and productivity. This is ultimately a vision of the new heaven and the new earth that the book of Revelation speaks about. Christians are utopians. We don't believe that we can build utopia by ourselves in this world, but we believe that it is coming. That's the vision, amazing vision. But why did Judah need it? In Isaiah's day, they needed to be reminded that God's plan to bring peace and security would succeed. Even though it looked like it wasn't going to happen, it's coming, he promised. I'm paying tribute to a nation that's committed to destruction and can ultimately protect you. It's pointless. The exiles in Babylon reading this would need it because their situation would appear hopeless too. As I said, the plan of God would seem defeated. But then, well, hang on a minute. Isaiah predicted that we would end up here and we have ended up here. So perhaps his prediction of restoration will come true as well. And so it motivated the people of Judah to faithfulness in the present mission, even though it seemed so difficult. God's people in every generation need this vision. While the prophecy certainly points to the end of the age, I mean, we're not in a situation where there is no war between the nations, sadly. It points to the end, to the new heavens and the new earth, but the kingdom of God has already come roaring into the present day when Jesus came onto the scene of time. He is the word that became flesh, says John, and dwelt among us. This is the language of a temple where God lives with his people. Listen to what Jesus says about his death later in John's gospel, chapter 12. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of being lifted up on a Roman cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He is the temple of God, lifted up above all other pathways to God. And strangely, in that brutal Roman execution of an innocent man, the nations would come and put their trust in him and find forgiveness for their sins. We're living in those days now, aren't we? And Isaiah would later prophesy that Jesus was that suffering servant. The consistent message of the New Testament is that since Pentecost, we are living in the latter days or the last days. And yes, there is a sense in which the last day is still to come, but they've already begun. The nations are flowing in. There is still warfare. The vision has not reached its climax, but it has begun to unfold before our very eyes. So when we're tempted to throw in the towel on personal evangelism, 
to fly below the radar and work when that opportunity comes to share. But we know it's going to be difficult. When the desire to persist in prayer for our missionaries dries up. When we struggle to persevere in mission, imagine the outcome. Are you shunned in work or tired and burnt out or feeling the pinch in your pockets from giving? Many peoples shall come to God, to Christ, Isaiah says. Imagine the outcome and see the progress already. How many times has has a Christian prayed the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and God answers it. Every time a church is planted in a new area, every time the Bible is printed in a new language, Every time the gospel is preached and disciples are made, every time a a new ministry starts up in the church and, and people who don't know God are coming to hear, he's answering that prayer. The nations are coming. Progress might seem slow here in the West, but around the world, the church is growing rapidly in the face of much greater opposition than we will ever face. In our lifetime. And that's why we need to keep an eye on local mission, but also on global mission too. And I encourage you to to do something to help you keep an eye on global mission, to perhaps download something like the Open Doors app, which, yes, gives stories every day of terrible opposition that Christians are facing, but also gives good news stories of how people are coming to Christ in places where the church is most opposed. Soon we'll be doing 30 days of prayer for the Hindu world. Can I encourage you to get on board with that and have your eyes opened to what's happening around the world? That will encourage you to persevere when your own involvement in mission might seem like a drop in a bucket if even that. Imagine the outcome of missions. But in turn, this should motivate us, secondly and finally, to stick to the message. Stick to the message. 99.9% need not apply. I'm sure some of you at least know what advert that comes from. Advert for recruitment to the Marines. I remember first seeing these adverts and and being fascinated by them, holding my breath while the the Marine trainee swam under that underwater tunnel and got his boot stuck in a rock and started to panic and then got free and got out. The, The grueling existence of training to be a Marine. They visited our school once and took the rugby team out on training session, only one person didn't throw up when they were done. And that kind of advert is counterintuitive. I thought, I thought you're trying to encourage people to get on board. But actually, it was a breath of fresh air in the midst of all these adverts that mumbled their terms and conditions at the end of the advert because they didn't really want you to hear what the real deal was. It was honest. 
And because it was honest, it drew people in. Probably drew the right people in. It was an exclusive message. It wasn't an easy message, but it was honest, it was true, it was real, and people got on board. In mission, we have an exclusive message. It's a great message of grace and forgiveness, but it's also a hard message of repentance. Here, Isaiah boldly proclaims that the gods of Assyria and Egypt and Babylon, impressive as they seemed, they won't save, Isaiah says, to a people who are considering putting their trust in them or adding them in to their collection of gods. Yahweh plus Baal or Horus or some other god. Coming to God demands repentance. It demands abandoning all other ways of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the way, not our way, the truth and the life. Notice in verse 3, why the nations come. Why do they come to the mountain of the Lord? They say to each other, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That, so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. And they recognize that it's out of Zion that comes the true way. It's God's revealed truth that alone can see if they're not going up this mountain to have some mystical experience or to, to add Yahweh to their collection of gods. No, they're, they're coming, they're approaching in faith and repentance, abandoning all other ways to salvation. In the book of Acts, we see this very thing being worked out. Remember the, the Ephesian men who heard Paul's preaching and what did they do? They repented and they took all of their books of magic and divination and they made a great big bonfire out of them. Those books, commentators reckon, would have been several lifetimes of wages up in smoke. Why didn't they just sell them and live off the proceeds? Because they wanted to completely cut ties with a lifestyle and a message that was incompatible with the gospel. The Christian message demands coming in repentance to God through Christ. Repent and believe the gospel is the summary of Jesus' preaching in Mark's gospel. And that means lining up with the, what the Bible teaches about what I do with my money, how I spend my time, who I share a bed with, and ultimately who I belong to. You are not your own, says Paul. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. It's not exactly the slogan that's printed on my daughter's Disney princess notebook, live your story. No, live God's story. And we might be tempted when it comes to mission to water down parts of this gospel message and, and it's called a repentance, but don't miss that it's through this message in Isaiah's vision 
And in the book of Acts that the nations come, yes, many don't want anything to do with it and they reject that message, but it's through this message that the nations will come. It's the 99.9% need not apply advert that would seem to put people off, but in reality, it's the breath of fresh air. It's the honest message of truth that people want to hear. And ironically, this exclusive message of the gospel ends up being an inclusive message because it is a message of grace and forgiveness and how to get right with God. It's a message that says you can be forgiven. You can have peace with God now in the present. And yes, in the future too, but now in the present, you can have peace with God. And I find it really compelling that it's this message that nations from all around the world are drawn to. If it was a man-made message, it would be bound to one culture or one people or one place. It wouldn't have the legs that it's had over the past 2,000 years. But the gospel is reaching the nations, no matter where they come from, what they previously believed, what their assumptions about life and death and God were. It's got the ring of universal truth to it, doesn't it? It's the gospel of grace that compels men and women and boys and girls to give themselves in faith to Jesus Christ. So stick to the message. Persevere with the gospel, even though to some, mainly because of misconceptions, it's unpopular. And though it might seem unpersuasive and irrelevant, maybe even strange or weird or dangerous, as Rico Tice reminded us on Wednesday. But it's only through this message that anyone will come. Now, how in closing does this play out in our lives? Well, two things. First, when it comes to local mission, we need to study the message. We need to be familiar with the only message that can save. We've learned a lot, well, I certainly have, from Rico Tice's honest evangelism at our life groups. And one thing that he says, if you want to connect the gospel in your conversations with people to every aspect of life, well, you better believe it yourself and know it yourself. There's another motive to be reading your Bible every day, not just for your sake, but for the sake of others. Study the message that saves. Be familiar with it. Know how you would explain it to someone who doesn't have the categories of sin and salvation, who doesn't know anything about Genesis or Leviticus or Psalms or Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Study the message that saves. And coming along to our life groups, well, there's only one session left, is a great way to do that. And if you haven't had the chance to do that, I would really, really recommend the book that we have been studying, Honest Evangelism. And secondly, then, if we want this to play out in our lives, if we want to stick to the message, we need to support the messengers 
who bring that message where we cannot go or have not yet been called to go. And so let's be sure that we are praying for our missionaries, giving to our missionaries, coming along on Wednesday night to the prayer meeting, if perhaps you have not done that in a while, to hear from a missionary who's on the coal face and to be encouraged and motivated to pray. But you know, even as I say that, I'm discouraged that I don't do these things half as often as I should. And so we're back where we started. Like little Judah, surrounded by the mountains of these powerful nations and the darkness of our own selfish, sinful hearts, it seems like a struggle to persevere in the work of mission. But Isaiah says, look ahead to what's coming. In the words of John in Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our final piece. It's a video. It will be on the wall, but you can sing along. tree.